Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. On this episode, I sat down with Michael Wood Jr. Um, I reached out to Michael on Twitter and much to my happy surprise, he responded and agreed uh, to the interview, um, which was fantastic. I was in Los Angeles for a week, a couple weeks ago, and he invited me to his house and we sat down and chatted. Um, Michael is a retired Baltimore police officer. He is a former Marine. Um, He is an activist and an advocate, uh, a humanist for sure. What what he is an activist about, uh, what he's an advocate for is uh, civilian-led policing. He'd like to see a I don't want to speak for him. I'm not going to speak for him. I want you to listen to this and uh, and hear what he has to say because I won't articulate it as well as he will. It was an incredibly uh, inspiring, interesting, um, informative conversation for me. I learned a lot. Um, I, I put a ton of links on the heyhumanpodcast.com website. I hope... You guys um, go and check it out. There's a lot of really great information there. And um, I also put a link to the trailer for the movie 13th. Um, It's an incredibly important documentary to watch. Um, Yeah, so there's that too. So civilian-led policing is is a big one. Uh, It's really what we're focusing on in this conversation. Again, I don't want to speak for Michael. I'm going to let him do his... The talking for himself, because that's what he does best. And uh, other than that, I'll tell you the usual stuff. Um, Instagram, Facebook, you can find Hey Human Podcast. Um, on Twitter, it's under Susan Ruthism. Uh, I also have a personal Facebook that's Susan Ruthism, as well as a personal Instagram that's Susan Ruthism. Please feel free to find me there. I have links, by the way, uh, speaking of social media, for all of Michael's social media, it's on the heyhumanpodcast.com uh, website. But uh, I do encourage you, please follow him on Twitter. It's a, he's, he has a great Twitter feed. He gives a lot of really wonderful information. Um, it's very thoughtful, thought-provoking, um, <laughs> insight, inciting sometimes, but very insightful. Um, it should be inciting. Like if you're not, if you're not getting incited about things, you're not paying attention. I think there is a lot going on out in the world, and thank God there are people screaming about it from the rooftops. Um, anyway, so there's that. Uh, so I don't remember now if I said Michael's Twitter. Did I? Maybe I did. I don't know. It's at Michael A as an apple. Michael A Wood Jr. So I do recommend following him on Twitter. Um, What else? Oh, I have a donation button on the Hey Human Podcast website. Uh, Feel free to donate if you are so inclined to help keep us alive. And if you are out and about on iTunes, please rate and review. Rate or review. Whichever. Do both. Do one. Do the other. It doesn't matter. It does matter. It does. I'm lying. It totally matters. Please do. And tell your friends, get the word out, share the love, spread the joy. All right, that's that. Let's get started. Michael Wood Jr. 
Michael Wood Jr. Make sure I get that in there. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, welcome to Hey Human. Well, thanks for having me on the Hey Human. It was very kind of you to Human. say yes, first of all. You're my first Twitter ask. Okay. And that you responded right away. It was pretty awesome. Yeah. I appreciate that. I mean, I think anyone that cares enough to have these topics discussed deserves to be able to have these topics discussed. It's awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Um, I caught wind of you. First of all, uh, so Veteran Stand is is sure. your baby as or yours? And um, it, it it is. I guess I was the I'm the most original person. Uh, <laughs> You're OG. Yeah, <laughs> I guess I'm the OG of it. And the current CEO, uh, Anthony Diggs, he's certainly right behind me and ended up with more actual field experience yeah. in the place because he started it and finished it all the way to the end of the eviction. Right. So he has a lot more knowledge of what happens there. And I'm the president directing it because you know, I'm kind of the face yeah. of the thing. And I'm going to talk to him next. <laughs> yeah, good. Because <laughs> we're moving. Uh, I want to move out of me doing that aspect mm. um, because the policing issues are really huge. Draw yeah. me more yeah. to the side than that is. Sure, sure. OK. And you're a former Marine. Right. I'm just going to get your bio out there. So the basics um, and a you retired sergeant from the Baltimore Police Department. Right. So that's your credentials on high. Well, we could we could say that, but I actually tend to, I, I like to interject and um, like that's not why anybody should ever listen to me. Is that your phone or my phone? Um, I don't know. Did I turn me off? Hold on. Sorry. It's all your no, phone. go ahead. It's Keep talking. Me. Sorry. The the a lot of the attention and stuff comes because I'm a cop who talks about revolution. Right. And, but that's not why anybody should listen to me. Uh, the reason I know what I'm talking about in policing and how the management structure of it works and what we should do is because of my scholarship. It has nothing to do with that experience. Somebody that reads through the scientific literature can arrive at the very same conclusions I've arrived at. I can just better conceptualize them because of those years of pr being a practitioner. So I see how the, the laws and the structure translates down to the officer. I can make that connection between theory and application. application. That's really why I should be listened to. Well, that and I think anyone, it's, it's one thing to be scholarly, but to have um, intrinsic, tactile, hands-on, I mean, you lived, you lived in it. Right, so I, now I see to... what was controlling me. Right. Whereas one person's being controlled and one is the controller, no one knows the strings of the puppet. Right. So that's the thing. Because I was the puppet and the string master, I know what's going on. But that's, that's a more why. powerful voice. Sure. Yeah. But, Be but don't listen to people because they're cops. A lot of cops are fucking idiots. Well, a lot of humans. <laughs> I, I would A lot of people are idiots who happen to get jobs in places where they are in places of power. Right. and. And we'll get into all of that. Sure. Stuff. So sorry, so, I interrupted. No, 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 you didn't interrupt. Um, so, it. I would say the rise to people knowing who you are came from a series of tweets that you did, mm -hmm. and I'm sure everybody in your interviews talks about this. But it's sort of the baseline where things launch sure. from. And right? it's a societal marker, I think, as right. well that somebody paid attention. Right. Right. Twitter is such a voice right. now. But um, so you talked about what you saw within the. Uh, institution of, of policing and spoke out, which, I mean, first of all, as, as I started delving into your story, I thought, man, I bet that put a giant target on your 
on your back. Just how did, did you have a moment before you started? I know that that was rhetoric between you and friends and, and reporters and things like that, where you were just having the conversation because the conversation needed to be had. So you were having it. And did, when, did you have that moment where you said, okay, what I'm about to say is going to be subversive? No. You didn't. Um, there was no gatekeeper. You just went for it. There that's was good. never. I mean, I think that's good, but I think a lot I, of people. My personality flaw may be rooted in that there's never been a gatekeeper. Okay. Um, <laughs> no. To that, though. There is not a person in the Baltimore Police Department that's remotely surprised that that took place. Okay. There's not a person that served in the Marine Corps with me that's remotely surprised that that took place. There's not a family member that's remotely right. surprised You're that that took place. You're just a mouthy fucker, right? What, <laughs> well, the real change was that somebody listened. I uh, had been talking for quite a while. Yeah. And nobody was really paying attention. But because, really, of the martyrship of Freddie Gray is why somebody listened and and was looking at that and it became an issue so All eyes I, were on right Baltimore. i really think that 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 was the catalyst it's really a credit more to the activism in baltimore and highlighting the issues there mm-hmm. that gave that rise than anything i was doing and then when they saw a pretty white boy was saying it oh well then bring well, the camera that's that's a fascinating uh subset of the conversation in and of itself i mean here you are a white man I mean, you, you're very uh, Aryan looking, for lack of a better word. It's a very uh, big word right now. And yeah. you're saying, you know what I mean, though? I'm it's the like, Eurocentric idea of perfection. male attractiveness. Yes, yes. Okay. That's perfection, <laughs> right. So, and here's this voice. And not only that, but the, the a Marine and a police officer and like, what? Talk about taking the paradigm and, you know, throwing well, it Well, a lot of those window. things happen for... In- like intentional purposes. Um, we have to talk about the fear issue, which we talked about with threats. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing we, we do have to talk about is why those checks in those societal boxes are there. A lot right. of that was on purpose. Yeah. Um, so when you say service and you say these checks, like part of our society has told us that whether you are credentialed or you should be listened to or you have value is predicated upon these check marks that you put. Mm -hmm. And so I have pursued from a young age a checking every box that I possibly could because I come from poverty and that is seen as the scale up. So it's like this, I need to take away every excuse people have Mm -hmm. for not accepting that rise out of poverty right. which is a i don't know a weird and you have a master's burden. right uh, i'm just finishing my phd now oh you really so so i'm almost at all the dissertation i have two more bullcrap classes to okay. finish and then i'll be at all the dissertation but that's all ready to go i already yeah. have scientific merit and all that when you're a kid you're like jr what else can i put out <laughs> <laughs> well I, I hopefully i won't have to do all those things because i really think they are checks in the box yeah and they don't they mean something but what they mean is uh, very subjective sure um, and then we have the fear aspect, which we can delve into a little bit more. No, cops don't threaten me. Um, and, and I think it comes loaded with a lot of assumptions to think that they would come after me. Right. Or that I am their enemy because I do not criticize cops. I criticize this the is, institution. Yeah. And that's why I've never named names, which people are very critical of from time to time, that I could name names and I am obviously a witness to crimes that I am overtly refusing to testify to Mm -hmm. and that can be judged 
subjectively by anybody who wants to make that judgment, but I cannot reform policing if I'm an actual whistleblower. Because no one that's a whistleblower becomes more than a caricature of policing. It's an interesting thing to say. I mean, in in light of so recently, obviously, the um, over the weekend with Charlottesville and all that, and Twitter then took up arms and outed all these people. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting thing to think about. Do they are they given then in that outing space to grow and maybe change their way of thinking, or will it I do think the opposite? Th- yeah, I. You know, for a civil case and it's a preponderance of the evidence, I I don't think this is a good idea. Um, to out them? Yeah. I, I think, for one, you're attaching a label to them that is most assuredly not there. Just in the very same way that ISIS does not understand Islam. Uh, Nazis, these, these people do not understand Nazism. They could not give you the tenets of Nazism. You know, you know maybe 10 of them could in the right. whole entire group. Sure. So that's not their focus. Their focus is something that they don't understand. And what they don't understand is that they are a member of the oppressive regime of capitalism and colonialism in America. And they've been told their whole lives that the repercussions of these things don't apply to them. Mm-hmm. But as time goes on and more wealth is and resources are clustered towards the elite, then the oppressed bottom becomes bigger. And you find yourself not being so much in a privileged class and more obviously in the press class. You always were, you were just less aware of it. Mm-hmm. And so now you have to blame somebody. Right. And they don't, they can't articulate their blame. It's just that this is my side. They're telling me this is the other side. I'm against what that is. So we all infight with one another and refuse to address the main issue, mm-hmm. which is that we were all oppressed. So I, I think those people are realizing um, a lot of the things that the rest of the oppressed classes mm-hmm. have always known, and they're in this state of shock at the moment, so they don't know what to do. And if we dox them, then you you are putting them on that other team. And so there is, it makes it more difficult for people like me to try and explain that these divisions aren't real. Right. It's an interesting argument because if the, I always like to use high school dynamics as a good example. Of the lunchroom humans, table, I do it too. Yeah, because it's the way, it's just the way humans behave in their most lizard form, I guess. Nice. You know, and uh, if you, if you put a mob mentality together, the mob, it's going to act like, um, what are those starlings that move like that? Mm-hmm. In that, in that, um, and so even if maybe I don't feel what is being said around me, if I am in that mom mentality, in the moment, mm-hmm. in the snapshot, perhaps I'm going to behave that way, right. you know? And, and so that is certainly part Which of it. Which is well documented, though. I mean, that yeah, is not, that's not like a crazy phenomenon. It's not crazy. So just like, like I'm, I shed all labels of being left, right, Republican, Democrat, any of that kind of stuff. And most people are going to associate with me that most of my ideas are left-leaning ideas that people would say but if i like so i feel like when i say our team i'm saying mostly left ideas but when we see people on the left get doxxed Mm -hmm. and out it for things Mm -hmm. then we know that sets the wrong standard when you see that they're scanning the crowd from a black lives matter protest and then they're doxing people and they're calling them out we all know that's wrong so why the 
heck are we going to do that to the other side? That makes us in this thing. So um, I, I think it's well supported in the literature, but what I've even arrived to just practically is that the sense of justice in this country is revenge plus equality. And that can mean we're all equally oppressed mm-hmm. or we're all equally fighting to be the oppressor. And none of that is solving a damn thing. You have to be united to fight against oppression, which is why I'm trying to say like, those those people at the white nationalist rally, they, they are members of an oppressed class and they're too uneducated because of their oppression to understand that we are all on the same team. I, I think it's important to... I, and I'm just going to assume when you say oppressed class, you mean pover- people in poverty. Well, there's various, various levels. Yeah. So the one they're most closely associated to is poverty, right. but they're going to have other ones. Miseducation sure. is going to be one, and allocation of resources, most people in poverty, and the life expectancy of the white population is going down faster. Yeah, I think that's a conundrum. I think people look at the white male... And they say, oh, this is an elitist class. This is a, a special class. They they get a full free pass on everything without digging deeper into the strata and going, oh, but wait, there is a mm-hmm. there's a lower class to, you know, quote, I'll put quotes around that to, you know, white males. There there are many a ghetto for, again, lack of a better word, but that is populated by sure. whites. So my own. So if I was born into the elites, I would have no hurdles. Right. Right. So I was born in the poverty, so that's my only hurdle. If I was a woman, I would be poverty, and I would have misogyny to deal with. Right. So I would have two oppression classes, so I call them factors. So like, if you are a Muslim woman uh, with a hijab wood, and you were born poor, like you got like all the things against you. So it's those hurdles, those people have more hurdles. Right. So it's just a matter of how many combine on you at once. And so it's easy for me to become a voice that's listened to because I'm only jumping one hurdle. Yeah. Did you did you have a moment uh, that you said, all right, it's time for me to... I know you say you've always been an outspoken person, which I think that that leads itself to an end. But um, that moment where you said, I'm going to take up the fight of trying to, yeah. to shine a light on... Yeah, on it, it was going on in the police force and the system. It was our union. So, I'm it, sorry. It was our union, our oh, police union. Okay, uh huh. So, our police union stood up and made this, of which I'm still a member of, and I do that on purpose. Uh, so the FOP stood up and said that there was nothing wrong with the fact that Freddie Gray was killed in this situation. Mm-hmm. And it was like, whoa, like mm-hmm. there is no way we can articulate that argument. Like, I, I don't understand where you could even connect it. Right. So I was like, that's ridiculous. So if we can't admit this, well, then we can't admit anything. So if we can't admit anything, I'm going to admit everything. And so that's when I started writing. Uh-huh. And so I was just cutting my lawn. And I was I heard the F... I was reading on my cell phone right before I went to cut the lawn that the FOP had said that. Like, I, I was reading it. And I was like, that's ridiculous. So I just sat down and I, I just typed out the first 10 things that popped in my head that I remember happening and said, I'll, I'll write more later. And put the phone down. And went to go. Uh, that's the stop yeah, at the sure. door. <laughs> <laughs> They're coming to get us now. And then I went to go check. I, I went and cut, my, cut, my, cut the log. Yeah. And came back after I was finished and, and looked at my phone. Your life had completely and, changed. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. But, you know, in my belief system, I, I feel like that was it was all on the, the course that it was going to be anyway. So 
Let's get to that. Freddie Gray statement by the police saying, oh no, no wrongdoing. The America on one side goes insane, on the other side says, well, yeah, to protect and to serve, you know, that they're doing their job and all is right. Protect and to serve, that is, that's a real dicey commentary for the police. The police do protect and serve. Oh, I know they do, but I, but they don't protect and serve the people. I was just going to say, but who are they protecting? (laughs) Who are they serving? And, you know, knowing that I was going to be speaking with you, I, you know, I, when I do these conversations, I like to know enough that I don't sound like an idiot. <laughs> but I also want to make sure that, that the conversation is flowing and that it leads the way it leads. And, and I don't want to assume I know something that I don't mm. know. And, you know, that, that idea that you can know just enough to, to, to have it be a problem. But so I was reading about protect and serve. And it was, some, it was like a catchphrase in 1955. The L.A. Police Department came up with that as a branding, I guess, for, you know, and, um, I started thinking about how, in my, my personal belief is that the prison system, especially one that is for profit, is a shit show. Um, I also believe that there is a a horrific cycle that keeps poor people poor, and poverty, unfortunately, begets crime. And I remembered when I was little and in my neighborhood, which was diverse, the police used to drive around and hand out um, basketball cards and talk to the kids and get to know them. And to me, that's what protecting and serving is. It's knowing your neighborhood and becoming an integral part of not in a Pollyannic Mayberry sense, but in actually knowing who your neighbors are, knowing that these people are on your side and not feeding into some grander mechanism that is a huge money-making scheme of if we keep these people impoverished and keep the crimes going on and we're not really, you had mentioned things like quotas on some of your interviews. As soon as I heard that, like I guess in the back of my mind, I knew that police officers have a particular amount of of, um, arrests that they have to make but then it all started kind of falling into place. There's a reason why when this country goes, I know I'm tangenting, but when it'll get to the point, when, when we go to war and um, contracts are given out, for example, it, there's, you're not supposed to give the contract to the guy that's your best friend if you're the president, or you know what I mean? There's, there's a conflict of interest there. So how is it not a conflict of interest for police officers to be feeding into this grander machine of a privatized prison system. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it made my brain go, wait, this is not right. Yeah, there's a lot of problems in what you're saying. Yeah. Um, in both ways, things you're right about and things you're dead wrong about. Okay. Um, Yay, good. I like so, being wrong. So we're gonna, <laughs> we go through some of those real quick. The first thing of the prison and for profit. Mm-hmm. All prisons are for profit prisons. Mm-hmm. There's no difference in a private prison and a state prison other than the name on the building. And a lot of people have to remember that when we say, oh, well, let's end private prisons. That's not going to do a damn thing because that is only one individual or a small group of individuals you're talking about. Mm-hmm. In a state prison, for example, the bunk beds, the, the toilet mm-hmm. paper, the uniforms to supply, the personnel, everything else that is the entire... top ramen. Sure. <laughs> 
Anything else that's, that's the entire infrastructure mm -hmm. is still, so it's 99.99999% private, even when it's state. Makes sense. So it's a very big distraction to worry about private prisons. They're mm -hmm. all wrong. Mm -hmm. And just because some of them we make sh some, there's a middleman that collects a bunch of money, mm -hmm. doesn't really change the fundamental underlying problem. Right. Um, so poverty. Poverty does not beget crime. Um, it is uh, wealth, income, uh, disparity that is correlated to crime. If the entire population is poor, we have plenty of examples of that. Right. Right. So the problem becomes when there's poor people and extremely rich people, that is the correlation it's to crime. It's an economics problem. Right. So we say we like to isolate poverty as correlated to crime, and it's actually not. It's yeah. it's wealth and income disparity. See, I'm so glad that I said that. So uh, you would say. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that community sense that you were talking about, like in the protect and serve model, motto, yeah. LAPD was probably coming from a good place thinking, like, that's what we all want police to do. Yeah. And so we think this is what we're doing. We're paying for them to do these things. So they're going to provide this service and it's all going to be wonderful. The problem is, is that we never changed any of the fundamental structure of what policing was when it started in the 1700s. And without changing any fundamental structure of what policing was, then you never got protect and serve you. You got the original Thing, which is to protect and serve the elite of society and furthering that capitalistic ideal. So we can go in and I'll explain the history of policing and, and why that, that is the case and how we, we, we just can't get past that idea until you fix it. And this is very much what happened, I think, in the civil rights argument, too, is that we changed culture in 1964 and started realizing the things that we needed to do. We needed to, with the Civil Rights Act, mm -hmm. how we needed to change everything. But we never actually codified any systemic and institutional change. So all of the institutions still remained with their racist and colonial roots of white supremacy mm -hmm. that they originally developed in. So even if we did something like we said, all right, we passed the 1964 Rights Act, so now we're going to say, realtors, you cannot discriminate in housing. But you never changed anything about being a realtor. So their job and their culture and all is going to continue on the same without systematically changing the actual institution. So we're in the same situation in both of those kind of concepts, if that makes sense. It does make sense. It, uh, I know that you've spoken out about um, in Baltimore, there's things written into the deeds. And that was like the first time that I'd heard of that. I had um, John Angelo on the show, and he's the the son of the owner and he's the you know the whatever president of the baltimore orioles okay and so when all that peter stuff, angeles yeah it's his son john yeah um and he told he told me about that and i was like i'm sorry what and a lot of that still lingers into how communities are divided will you today. tell them about them the people listening what that well more importantly than actually those those are like ones you can still see where they put into the lease like you cannot sell this house to a black man like that's literally in the lease going out throughout time, you cannot transfer that over to anyone else. But redlining is really where how those things came in. And so redlining, basic concept, is that realtor markets would redline areas literally on a map. You had red, areas marked in red, areas marked in yellow, areas marked in green for how mortgaging would be done and the rates and whether you would do it. So yellow was like 
caution area and red was the do not lend to. So red was all the black communities which they refused to give mortgage loans to. So they got trapped into tenancy and being abused and like slumlord kind of things which those have transpired throughout time to still make those neighborhoods in those exact same patterns that they were because you locked them into that cycle. Uh, that's just an example of never changing the laws so because now you did something like that those red line communities now don't have good credit because you've been extracting wealth and resources from them through all that all this time so now even in our new system you can't give them credit and build up these things because now they don't meet the new requirement that we've established it's just still a eurocentric idea like iq or something is a credit score right. to then be the determinant so you end up with these lingering effects that are just a chain because we think we're doing good without underlying the core element Mm-hmm. Um, you also mentioned foreign policy and talking about how we, we, we send assets over to, to outside the thing. But we also have to understand that foreign policy and domestic policy are the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. There is no difference. Uh, we train poor people to extract resources from, from other poor people in this mm-hmm. country by putting on a badge and a uniform and telling them that that's a good thing and is to be praised as heroic and patriotic. We also send, and to kill brown people in the same process. Absolutely. We also train 17-year-old young men from poverty to try and get to a college degree. That's why I joined the Marine Corps to make sure I could go to college because I needed that check mark. Mm -hmm. So then I was trained to go overseas to extract resources and kill brown people in the process. There is no difference between our policies. I've often said to people who, you know, sitting around, the dinner table and we're all discussing the plight of the planet and and why people are the way they are and I often say follow the money that's just that's it it's really the bottom line is follow the money I think you know it's so frustrating to not to feel helpless from my from my chair other than speaking out as best I can and talking to people who speak out as best they can so Let's talk about policing, because that's really your that's your forte. Um, what do you think is the answer to to cleaning up some of this disastrous? Well, we we have to do a complete reboot for right. sure. Um, that's why I'm trying to say that like the systems they must be radically reformed, and it's radical in our concept not in application like the science of this is well established and we we know what to do to these things it's more breaking a mental barrier that we have can you do it insularly within yep, the, absolutely before you work on the problem over here or you know the perceived problem over here can you do it within no um so i'll they, explain they, they have why to work in tandem do they? um no because no. of that fundamental issue i think if we if we change the 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 underlying premise of policing which we will get into real quick I don't think you have any of the same outcomes that we're trying to mitigate. So we'll go back to how the policing, we even get to my evolution because it's, it's the same evolution like everyone needs to go through. And that is when I was a cop, I came from the Marine Corps, I was excelled, professional, um, very much determined to follow what, what the goals were to get ahead. Um, I was the youngest detective. I was the youngest sergeant. I was the same way in the Marine Corps. I was the youngest corporal. I was, yeah, so, so I was always driven to, to go ahead and do that. Mm-hmm. And it was extremely easy in the police department because the competition was so low. Mm-hmm. And as I went through fast going to what I wanted to do, I ended up as like a 26-year-old in the major 
case narcotics squad. And so I became really isolated from policing because I was in, kept being in elite units and I was very isolated in the Marine Corps. And I didn't understand a lot of the veterans issues till I talked to other veterans because of being in an elite unit again, I was isolated from everybody else. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, is I got promoted. And then that took me out of my isolation because you go back to patrol when you get promoted. And I go back to patrol and I have a squad and we're doing great. I have all these guys and girls that I like. We're doing a good job um, getting a lot of stats because we're measured, remember we're measured by stats. Yeah. So I also know that any good mid-manager, their goal is to protect their people from the idiocy of command. Right. So by what I do as a good manager then is I give command what they want so that I can protect my people from their mistreatment. I don't mean to interrupt, but I just mm -hmm. want to make that super clear is that that you're discussing it as if you were at any job where mm -hmm. there's a higher boss and the underlings and then the guy in the middle who's just trying to make money for. I think that's so important because I think in, in people's minds, they don't understand that policing is also a, a, a machine. That's all it is. Yeah. That's it. But I don't think people... It's an institution. It's an that. organization. It's a business like right. anything it's a business else. And it has a business model. Yes. It so does I, have a business model. So I just wanted and that's to why make we, that super clear because I don't know that people are going to hear that distinction. And that's probably the biggest highlight that we need to get when it yeah. comes to solutions yeah. is that it is a business model. Yeah. Okay. So... I go back and I like all these guys and I can control them and it's all good. We're doing fine. But uh, we ha I had a, a shift commander who was really into making sure that people were educated in policing. It was like become some passion of his. So he made up this list and he said, we're going to test these guys to see how much they know. Within the... Within our shift. Okay, got it. And so mm -hmm. he said he, his first question that he was going to ask them was what constitutes an arrest, a legal arrest. Mm -hmm. And... I said, yo, they don't know the definition of an arrest. And he said, yeah, of course they do. I said, I guarantee you, they do not know the legal requirements of an arrest. We go out there, he asked the question, nobody knew. Like, they don't study the law, they have no idea. So we go back in the office and I'm gloating. You know, I'm like, ah, you dummy, I told you, they don't know anything. Like, what is wrong with you? How did you think they knew that? And so we're sitting there, and I'm kind of just joking with them, and then I was like, oh, damn it. We're responsible for this. We just mm -hmm. identified mm -hmm. that our shift is completely inept in their knowledge of what they need for their job. We're going to have to fix this ourselves. We don't, we don't have an excuse so the other two sergeants and the lieutenant began to cover my shift and cover some of my work while I sat down and spent two years working on a 518-page guide on how to be the most perfect professional police officer and supervisor all the way up to lieutenant that you could possibly be and get it into one book that's in everybody's hands and then we could get that out to everybody. Because one reason why people don't have information is a lot of it is tied to the promotion process. And in that promotion process, it's kind of dictated by the good old boys and they control who has the information of what will be on the testing. So they don't want this refined down to something that levels the playing field. So I became a big blackballed enemy after I did this hmm. because I did a lot to level the playing field of who could be promoted and who wasn't. I started teaching officers 
uh, how to how to go through the promotion process and to make sure they knew the right things. You know, the first batch of sergeants that got promoted, 25, 50 got promoted, and 25 of them were the ones that I taught. Wow. So they're used to 48 of the people being the ones that they hand-selected to be the next good old boys. Right. Uh, so I disrupted power. <laughs> when you disrupt power, you will get blackballed. Yeah. So went throughout my career trying to, you know, kind of fighting that blackballing them, trying to ostracize me and trying to just kind of, they try to marginalize me away. Like that's kind of what mainstream media does to me now too. It's like, just don't look over here. You know, everything will be fine if we don't listen to this crazy guy. So that, that ended up going throughout policing. And I, I was like, this isn't it, obviously. As we saw Mike Brown being killed, as I was getting out of policing, as I continued in more uh, more higher rank and responsibility positions, it's like, just like this isn't the problem. It's, it's not our professionalism. We have something fundamentally misaligned mm-hmm. in that we have a management issue that the people we're serving are not guiding us. And that doesn't make sense. So I went and started, I got out of policing because I got injured and they push you out. So it was just very good coincidence. And I started my master's in business management and IT on purpose because I said, we have a management issue I need to address. But what happened with that book that you put together? It's still did out there get, on Amazon. Get... Yeah, oh, okay. Anybody can buy it. Yeah, okay, it's out there. All right. yeah. okay. So it's, it still remains good for high stress scenarios because I don't think they'll change. Um, like a hostage barricade or something like that. I have like step-by-step guides of what you perfectly do to, to get through a hostage barricade situation as a boss on the scene. So th- those things are still out there. And, I would imagine that would be a good book to read even if you're a civilian. Sure, I mean, it's, it's at least interesting. Yeah. Um, if you're curious-minded like that. So it's still out there and people can get it. But I, I now don't believe that that's really the answer. Um, my And meantime, in the police department, I did get a bachelor's in criminal justice. And... What I saw in that was an ideology and a religion. I didn't see data to prove their claims. So I was like, I don't know, man. Like, the, I kind of came out of criminal justice just thinking, you guys don't have any idea the what data, you're doing. The criminology? Of criminology, mean, right. Isn't that interesting? So, like, well, I mean, everything that they base that it off of, polygraphs, fingerprinting, yeah. all of these things are all, most of it's all junk science. Mm-hmm. And like, this, is, this isn't, this is no good. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know what you're doing. Like, even the polygraph in policing doesn't make any sense. So it's like, oh, we have all these ideas. Like, so fingerprints. We all think fingerprints are, are unique. They're not. They're like they're, not. they're like one in 3.6 billion possibilities, right? Mm-hmm. But that means so there's somebody out yeah. there. Right. So whenever we say we've never matched fingerprint, there's no two fingerprints that are the same. That's true. We've never matched two of the same fingerprints. Mm-hmm. But numerically, we know it exists. But every single fingerprint expert will still go up there and say no two fingerprints are the same. And that is not true. We have never found mm-hmm. two fingerprints that are the same. And we say things like, these people commit crimes. No, those people were arrested on the suspicion and allegation of committing a crime. We did not measure criminality. What the hell are you talking about? So that's why I went into management to try and figure out like metrics and incentives and how that that all aligns. Mm-hmm. So in the master's program, that's when I said, like, this is clear, like we are not aligning our shareholders who should be dictating a company like any 
company does. Shareholders mean the people. People, yes. Who's paying for it? Right. Who's getting service? But, you know, <laughs> I, I guarantee nearly everyone listening to this, when they pass a police officer in their car, or even if they're doing nothing wrong, they immediately get, like, their sphincter closes up, you know, like, oh, sure. because there's this... They're not serving you. No. So that's what we're going to get to. <laughs> right. So what we structured in our system was that we have representatives who serve us yeah. and will then thus tell the police department what we want. As a, That's our middleman mm -hmm. that we have decided upon. Problem is, as Princeton has shown, hands down, politicians do not give a damn what the constituents want. They care what their donors want because that's how they're going to continue to ascend through office. So we do not have a pathway of the shareholders to influence the product that they receive. Mm -hmm. There's literally no mechanism for you to have any say at all in your police department. And what you end up doing, talking about distractions, is we argue over which person will police us. So we argue about which chief we will have. Oh, we want this one to rule over us. We want this one to be our fascist dictator. No, we want a black female to be the one to execute white supremacy over us, is the argument that we end up having. So we have to figure out how do we take our fundamental problem of our shareholders not being the ones who are determining which product they get. That's what must be interrupted before anything else. Well, and I think, too, there's a, a, a misnomer. People think that just because you're a black police officer that you won't be uh, also involved in racism. Right. So now why they do, let's explain that real quick. Because okay. I mean, that's... So the whole study has been, why is policing this way then? So that's why I continued as my management, as, as in my master's and then through my PhD, why is it this way? Mm -hmm. So it's why this way for a well-documented reason why it's this way. So in, in American policing, it's very unique because we have a, obviously a unique beginning because we're from a colonial takeover. Sure. And so the first policing that was established in this country was established as slave patrols. And most people do actually know that part. They just don't understand how significant that is. So what that ends up doing is, is we have done the first policing is more wealthy people trying to find slaves a crime that isn't an actual crime and then sending them back to the South and then writing them a citation, which is incredibly critical. So then as policing gets more professional, they continue to look at who commits crime. Oh, the people we charged with committing crime commit crime. So you go back to those original citations and you start building up this database throughout, throughout history that ends up resulting in us saying things like, who commits crimes? Well, 16 to 24 year old black males commit crimes because that's who we arrested before and so that's who we look at. Whoa, mm -hmm. you're looking at them from a premise that's false. So you started this cycle where you said, I'm going to use policing, which is violence. We must understand that all policing is comply or die. It is, people say, oh, policing is not comply or die. It absolutely is. If you don't so much as pay your parking ticket, it will eventually result in your death at the state hands if you don't comply at some point in time. So we ended up with that type of policing that's rooted on, on an idea of a false data set from the very beginning. And so that ended up being the first thing that policing does. Their primary mission is the creation and maintenance of oppressed classes, mm -hmm. and then the extraction of wealth. serving the elite. elite. Yeah. So, and then the extraction of wealth 
from those oppressed classes to fund their very own oppression. So what that looks like in modern form is you're in West Baltimore looking at people like Freddie Gray, and then you give them a regressive tax. So a regressive tax is a fine. So a $50 loitering fine because you're looking at Freddie Gray, not because he's an actual criminal, but because somewhere down the line, uh, 200 years earlier, you were giving citations to slaves in a direct line to why you're rationally doing this now. And you're giving him a $50 ticket, which is huge. A $50 ticket in a regressive tax ends up being like 20% of your expendable income for that month. So that means choosing whether you eat or not, or whether you can have a bus ride or not to get to the next thing. Whereas $50 to right me job. is extremely inconvenient. I don't want that. But if we're elite, then $50 means absolutely nothing. So even if the cops did look at us and want to give us $50 fines for loitering, whatever. If you're elite, you don't care. So then they take those fines, those fines go into the tax system, and then they pay for that, the police department, to then pay for more police officers to continue to create and maintain those oppressed classes. And the most sinister aspect of that is the enforcers of the oppression are drawn from the oppressed classes. And that's always been that way. The Nazis used Jews to enforce the same yes, way. It's, it's and a, in some cases, they were even more uh, terrible. Of than... course, well, that is the case in policing as well, as the black cops just like NWA said, do tend to be more violent. And I think that that is because the same reason that white cops actually tend to be more violent to white people, because you see that as an offense to your own people surviving in the system. So you're saying this person is making me look bad and hurting my ability to operate within the system constructs that we have. It seems to me that if I ran the world, which I clearly don't, but um, if if I'm going to have a police force, all this money should be going into educating my force in psychology, in how to handle intense situations, negotiating, you know, all that stuff. And you had mentioned on one of your interviews that um, they don't even get arms training, really, so much. <laughs> no. <laughs> Which I was like, what? I had to re-listen to that section a couple times. I thought, no, that can't be the case. And then, but I, I interviewed um, Karen Lynch, who was one of the first female police officers in uh, San Francisco and in the United States. And she, and we talked about PTSD and, you know, the, the tensions and how there's really zero help for officers for dealing with depression, anxiety, anxiousness, aggression, any of that stuff. So here, it's talk about a powder keg, and you're just throwing matches and gasoline around the room. Well, that's still it's still because of our fundamental misalignment of policing, because we're trying to mitigate human beings adjusting to being enforcers of violence, right? So I, I don't get into that. We can go down a really weird rabbit hole with this, because um, I, I think we're trying to look at outcomes and we're not looking at the true source of what we're looking for in a police officer. And we do this with soldiers too. We try to do things like mitigate the amount of trauma done to veterans instead of reducing the amount of veterans. And mm -hmm. and like I, I think that should be the real goal. So a more elite core of, of police course. officers so versus... Let's get to why this is. So okay. it's weird. So I like, just want to make sure I understand what yes. you're saying. Yeah. And because I don't think these, this gun around... We, we know inherently a gun makes everything more dangerous. 
So you have to have people that can actually handle it, know what they're doing with it, and maybe they're not supposed to be around kids and shit like that. Like right? 12 year olds. So when we go in the, you end up in these elite units, like in like a Navy SEAL or Force Recon or something like that. And so when we get into these units, we have to go through all these steps. And all these steps are like these really hard physical measures. And you have to do certain PT, you have to be able to shoot certain ways, you have to never make mistakes, you have to adapt to these things. And we think that we are training professionalism. And I don't think that's the case. I think that we are setting a selective process to weed out people who are genetically predisposed to not fear, right? So I have never felt fear my entire life. Not physical fear. I you can be, personally? Yeah, I can be emotionally harmed, but no matter what situation I'm gonna be in, I will be calm. And if it's physical, you know, you're not going to have 10 guys can bust in here with 10 guns and I'm going to remain perfectly calm and figure out the best way to resolve around that. Now, is that your Marine training or is it no, you? No, that's the thing. I don't think that this is a training issue because I've been okay. that way my whole life. I see what you're saying. I yeah. think that we actually want to do something crazy, like probably genetically screen who we put in these kind of situations mm -hmm. because those kind of traumas won't affect me. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be mitigated because I can move on because this fear of physical harm doesn't grip me. It also keeps your ego out of it. Right, when you're not worried about the outcome, you do the best move. So an example, like I said, like a, a ton of times I've gone into a building where it's these scary situations, you, you're by yourself, and like there's very good odds I'm going into something I have no idea what's happening. But I will hit that corner exactly like I'm supposed to do in a smooth, fluid motion, even if it's psychologically like wouldn't be the thing that you think you should do. I know that that's the higher percentage of odds to handle the situation. If I get shot in that way, I don't worry about it. Like I still know that that was the best odds that I have. When I was on the street, I like half the time I didn't even wear a vest because I was like, if. If this motherfucker beats me with a gun, <laughs> what have I been doing yeah. the last five years of my life? You know, so you end up in those kind of things where I didn't use force and I didn't go that far because I wasn't afraid. Yeah. And so we need to figure out we probably don't have a lot of people that can not that can handle fear in that manner. I would imagine that's a right? very rare... So you can be incredibly well-trained with a firearm, yeah. but the moment that fear comes, you're worthless. And I think that's probably for 99% plus percent of the population. So we don't physically have enough human beings who can do what you're asking them to do. So you have to change what you're asking them to do. Hmm. That's my problem with the guns and fear and policing, which is good to, is, is a well, deep, dark battle. I would argue, too, with, uh, with gun control, that the, the whole fear thing, I mean, that's why people buy five billion guns and stockpile them in their house. They're afraid. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, statistically speaking, They somebody, make themselves more dangerous. They just, yeah, exactly. So remember this, too, when, when people talk about, like, gun crime in Chicago, which always drives me insane when they say these things. But nobody in Chicago manufactures guns to hand out illegally to everybody. Every single gun that's used in a crime came from a responsible gun owner. Every single one. That was stolen. Right. Stolen, right. mishandled, or, just intentionally actually sold. I mean, right. they just flip them. So right, in right, Chicago, right. you can trace the guns all from they, not Chicago. Right. Right. So some responsible gun owner mm -hmm. sold it, transferred it, left mm -hmm. it unsecured, whatever. So like, there's no such thing as this responsible gun owner. It's mm -hmm. all imagination. Mm -hmm. Because the reality is, it's, it's not responsible for apes to run around with death sticks. 
Mm -hmm. So we have to start looking at what our actual problems are. And it's not how to mitigate apes with guns, with death sticks. It's, you, apes can't have death sticks. We're, we're apes. And right. we do right. really, yeah. really stupid things mm -hmm. when you give us that kind of power. Yeah, absolutely. But there's some pretty uh, powerful flows of money into making sure that people don't think that deeply. Yeah, because we're also apes who are easily manipulated. Yeah. So that is why we have to, when we end solutions before we run out of time, yeah. is that... This is one of those conversations that could go on so, for days. Yes, obviously. <laughs> Every single... Uh, okay, so let's take Exxon. That's the easiest way to do it. So Exxon is, is structured on a board that's run by shareholders who have invested into Exxon. It is driven by this evil thing we call capitalism. But these are just concepts and how they're applied. Everything's a tool. So if we take Exxon, who has gone and dominated the globe, and I'd hate to tell anybody this, but if you haven't realized that what Exxon thinks is important isn't hell of a lot more important than what America thinks is important. <laughs> you have missed the boat on the actual power structure in, in the world right now. This is a global society where national borders don't really mean crap. Corporate borders are what matters. Absolutely. So Exxon has grown into this thing that is more powerful than the vast majority of countries in this entire world. And they don't have an army. They don't have any of this stuff. What they have is a ruthless structure to achieve their goals called capitalism. I say we take that ruthless structure and we put it into the structure of rebooting policing and put in that structure so that its shareholders, which it ends up being an equitable representative of the population, and I can tell you how we get to there, and that is a board that controls the CEO who runs it and separates it things with the best business managed practices we have. We have stakeholder theory, which is well established. That's why Exxon is so good at it. We have ways to get consensus among shareholders. That's a Delphi methodology. We have corporate social responsibility theory, which establishes in a lot of companies that are looking to sustain for the long term that you have to have very long term goals if you want to survive. And even though we say you have a fiduciary responsibility for this evil thing of capitalism, you should not be looking at five-year goals. You should be looking at 25-year goals, 50-year goals. And the way to survive in 25, 50 years down the future is to be culturally responsible to the needs of the people and the shareholders and adapt to their long-term interests. That's how you will end up being a more successful company and, and use those ideas broader in the future. Exxon will not survive. Okay, they won't because they do not have a system and, and structure that's going to allow them to continue to shift. They are dealing in one product that cannot shift, so they have to have short-term goals and be ruthless. They're not using corporate social responsibility no theory. There's no long game. Right, but if we put in the long game, this model is incredibly powerful to serve its shareholders. Now, when those shareholders are you, then the police truly serve and protect and become your personal army. Mayor Bloomberg from New York, everybody can go look up the YouTube video where he announced proudly that he had the seventh largest army in the world, the New York Police Department, as his personal army. And he was absolutely right. The thing is, that army should be your army, not his. And that's what civilian led policing model is that I came up with as my PhD work. That's your dissertation? No, uh, my that would be an incredibly hard dissertation. My dissertation's way easier than that. The best <laughs> dissertation's a done dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you 
two questions that, that... So my dissertation, real quick, uh, yeah, so you know, yeah. is the misalignment from police management. Oh, okay. Right? So uh, every academy has best practices, and we, we understand best practices of policing. Like, so we know things like um, when you use a SWAT raid f- for drugs, that you're supposed to check the property listing, know who's there, do surveillance, check the house multiple times, do all these things to make sure you're doing the right thing in the safest way. But those practices almost never translate down to actual policing. So there's a thing in training knowledge and training outcomes, and there's a gap of why these things aren't aligning. So my dissertation is an interviewing with the current police management experts who are running the academies on why they think these incentives and are, are misaligned, why this training is misaligned, what their hurdles are, because they understand this. And so what is their barriers? And if then that will at least advance the field a little bit further to know what their barriers are because they never talk. But because of my access, mm-hmm. I have enough access to people who will talk to run those things. Oh, interesting. So that's that still will be valuable, but it's not. That would be a good read. I think. So going back to what you were just talking about, the the new model of how to to take the Exxon model and put it into policing, the two questions that come up for me with that is, how do you keep the um, the board or you know the the from from being corrupted because humans are corruptible. That's what. And then (laughs) and also. Um, how do you insert the virus into the matrix? Okay, yeah, okay. that's a great, great two primary questions that are that are always the problem and people will put up hurdles for. So for one, no matter who we get, if there's seven people, it's gonna be better than one moron. So we always have to remember that. Okay. <laughs> what if it's seven morons? That's the thing is then you're then you're saying that we have a bigger population of morons than we actually do. So it's unrealistic. Um, so what we decided to do is actually the model in work got us here. This problem perplexed me forever. You can't have elections and ruin it. It's become a popularity contest. We can't randomly select people. It can't be democracy because if we have democracy, we're going to end up with idiots. That's why we're not a democracy. I don't know why people don't get that. It's, I don't know why people don't get that. Yeah, it's we, a constitutional republic. We it's absolutely not a democracy. Not a democracy. It never was intended to be a democracy. So no. because democracies actually don't work. Right. Um, whether we are comfortable with that or not, they just don't work. Right. Um, so, so you have to mitigate those things. But anyway, so I ended up talking to this guy, Shorty, uh, Dwayne Davis, his nickname Shorty in Baltimore. He's an activist in front of the CVS at a year anniversary celebration of the uprising in Baltimore. And he was, he runs a uh, barbecue thing and he was running the barbecue and I was just sitting there kind of griping to him. And you're supposed to be listening to your shareholders. He's a shareholder, right? Of the lowest kind that people would think. And he goes, oh, dude, that's totally easy. You just do like a jury system, a jury pool type of system. But then you put in something so that only people that have like passed some kind of metric uh, of being able to think get on the board. And I kind of just was like, dude, I want to something. I, I don't have an immediate objection to that. Let me explore that idea. So as I went more into it, yeah, I think that that is the way we do it. Mm-hmm. We, we use an equitable way to, to distribute shareholders. So you know who gets the most police services and inputs and stuff like that. So we have to figure out how we weight this thing because it will need to be weighted. And what we do is we put up some requirements that help mitigate all of our problems. So do we want people to come in and gentrify it and come from power from outside? No. 
So to be even eligible for this board, you need to be a resident of this city for at least the last 10 years. Um, we want adults, so over 25. Uh, we can all argue about these particulars of what we want. So we start putting in mitigating factors like that. And the critical element that I learned in year 20 something of learning the scientific method as a PhD to learn how you actually do researching and you get deep in the critical thinking, I said, why in the hell is this not the first thing that we are taught in school? Why am I learning how to intimately get to truth in year 20 something? That doesn't make any sense. So all I need is people that know how to arrive at truth. I need you to understand the scientific method and critical thinking because we're going to have experts there to argue and present evidence. I just need you to understand what's evidence and what's truth. How do you find that so in we, a culture that we vilifies intellect? We can intellect. easily do an online class, in-person class. MIT can develop a week-long online course to easily measure to make sure people have established these things. We can do this super easy. They meet the metrics. They pass the test. They go into a jury pool. We do a salary thing so that rich people won't want to get in. It'd be like $80,000 for two years. So if you make a bunch of money, then you don't want to step down that low. But if you're poor, $80,000 is a huge jump for your life, right? So we can you put in all these influencing incentive things that we know. Every time you have a problem, say, what can we do to influence it in the, in the most appropriate way for equality? in this entire system. So we'll just keep measuring those things and adding them on. But once you are doing a random selection of people that have passed a critical thinking course and have been invested in your community for 10 years, the idea of getting four of seven of them to be morons, I can't buy. Do we need one moron to keep the balance so that so, it's not an intellectual elitism that also then... St I mean, there's like so many well, levels. Well, you're going to be assured that a moron's going to slip through here and there, right? <laughs> so just understand that some will get in there. But when we have CEO, and we think like this is a managerial issue, we have CEOs of, let's say the Baltimore Police Department was led by Fred Beefield. He was the CEO of the biggest agency in Maryland, in the whole state of Maryland, with the biggest budget. 52% of Baltimore City's budget was entrusted to a CEO who was a cop his whole life and had a GED education. That is in Foolery. You need a business management expert. You need an educator. Mm -hmm. You need somebody like that to be a CEO of these things, not cops. Cops go below the CEO because being a cop does not qualify you to be a management, a management of right. a major right. corporation. It's a business. Right. So right. We, when we put those things in, and that's the thing that Google learned. So Google learned that management is its own unique skill. They try to flatten their management structure and say, oh, well, we, as long as we have a really smart programmer and a really smart uh, this guy and, and, and that guy, then we need, we need a uh, really smart programmer management to run a team. And then we need a really smart uh, guy who knows anim, anim, uh, animation and he'll run a team mm -hmm. and so on and so on. Mm -hmm. And so they did that. And it was a complete failure because mm -hmm. these people couldn't communicate with one another. They thought they could just cross lines. And what they needed was somebody that actually didn't know any of those fields, didn't matter that they didn't know the fields, understood how to make management work and everybody. So they realized that they needed managers and that it was an actual skill unto itself. 
So we have to put that in our system. Management is a skill unto itself, which is entirely separated from the service people, the officers, and all civilian things will be separated from the police, and everything has to be crossed over a hard wall where there's constant checks and balances on everyone's power. As long as we codify that perpetually, then we will have a system that can move on. Because one big flaw in science is that everything that they say they know they only knew to be true at that moment under those very particular circumstances. And the very next day, those circumstances changed. So it's just the best that we know. That's it. You have to continually advance the discussion of what is reality and what is the best that we know because all of our variables change the very next minute. Mm -hmm. It's true. So how do you implement it in a system that does not want this change? All right, so that's your thing. How do you get the pill into the matrix? So that's what that group does. There's a group called Civilian-Led Policing who took my model and said, this is the key, this is what we have to do. So they've been traveling the country. They've been in like 48 cities in the last year, meeting with everybody, trying to figure out the best ways. So you have referendums in some areas, which looks the best way. So like Albuquerque looks like it could have some really good potential because they only need 14,000 signatures on a referendum. Mm -hmm. Now you get a referendum for people to vote that says you control your police department or, or super rich people control your police department. What do you want? That's pass is easy. We're not concerned about that. We're concerned about getting it on the ballot. So you have places where you can get it on the ballot. You can do it with a radical mayor who instantly says, you know what, I'm going to give up power. And I'm going to trust the people with this power. And it makes their job a hell of a lot easier. And they become a hero. Why they wouldn't do that? It's baffling. I mean, you get the same amount of pay and you get to lose in power. And you lose pretty much all of your responsibility. You lose 52% of your responsibility. They can't even protest against the mayor for police brutality from that point. Like, you, I don't have anything to do with it. Don't get mad at me. I'll talk to them. Mm -hmm. Right? So you would do things that are good for your career and, and be a, a permanent figure in history in this country. So that's one way. And then the other way would be for the city councils to unite together and change that, which is way more likely to happen, we think, in probably a small town that's Republican. Because these principles are very libertarian and cons conservative based, whereas like some other things work. You yeah, know, I'm, I'm okay sure. with that. That's why I don't buy either side. Right. Like, sure, I'm extremely left, but this works. Yeah. So it's very conservative, very libertarian, small government ideas because the goal is abolition. Then, because I'm going to explain to you that all guns make us all dangerous at all times. So we want to get as rid of as many as we can. So we end up with a goal of abolishing police, which couldn't be more libertarian <laughs> possible. So I want small government, I want to abolish policing, which I don't think is realistic, but I think that that is the goal that we should always have. And then we, we end up with, sure, some really weird left social ideas, but to, to some red conservative constructs, but like every poor person in West Virginia knows, welfare matters. So they're not really opposed to those ideas. And so we're kind of in this place where we think we might actually end up with a small Republican thing doing this radical left idea before we do with actual liberals. Do you think you'll see it in your lifetime? Oh, guaranteed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, all we're doing is trying to speed up the process. Uh, so we, we drive ourselves crazy trying to make sure that that there isn't another Tamir Rice because this is an equation. Right. So I think that the, the age of information, having this ability to communicate, knowledge being at our fingertips, 
I think 20 years from now, like all this dumb shit is completely over. Uh, we'll be very socialist minded. Uh, you're not going to convince, like, like my daughter. I mean, can you imagine convincing a current 12 year old that some 12 year old boy in Syria is her enemy? Right. Impossible. They can Skype. They can get on Snapchat and talk to one another. You're not going to convince her to go kill him. Ain't going to happen. Right. So we're going to have a lot of these changes, but that's an equation. And every moment that we are delayed, we are accepting the next Tamir Rice being murdered, which was my emotional break, which we didn't get into. I know. We could talk for hours. I I hope you're on the show again. I mean, I have like a thousand questions. So we we, we have to have all those in to, to speed up the process. But it's inevitable that we will end up with these better ideas. So, uh, I know, I don't want to take up all your time. You have been so gracious. Um, The last thing I want to ask you about is the concept of ignorance, which is so... I think it's easy for people to go, oh, that guy's just dumb. Like, "Mm, dumb, not necessarily. Ignorant, absolutely. Not you. The royal guy. I'm incredibly ignorant. (laughs) The royal Um. guy. And the the humans at large. You know, and I think there is this... This, oh, don't, don't ask, don't ask, don't look, don't, don't pay attention, don't, it's, everything's fine, everything's fine, everything's fine, but it's not fine. It's not fine. Yeah, not at all. Uh, and we're all incredibly ignorant, and for some reason we think it's wrong to be ignorant. I mean, there's a reason you should be asking me about police management and not no, go down the street, you know? No, like, saying, as a society, we sure. should understand the, the, that it's that, okay to be ignorant. And to ask, to, but yes. to like, actually <laughs> have a curious mind and to ask, and to be like, hey, that's... I don't understand this. Will you explain it better? I think when people decide they want to not only be ignorant, stay ignorant, and not ask the question, and then scream really loudly about how they know everything, that's where shit gets... All right, so let let me take us down a rabbit hole that I hope we can get out of real fast. (laughs) I fundamentally do not believe in free will. So when you say they choose this... I don't think human beings choose anything. They don't. We are a... All of us have our biological... Let's call that our biological experience. So that's like your tool chest that you have biologically. Um, Your nerves use a certain way. Your brain operates a certain way. Mm -hmm. All those things. Your hormones, your pituitary gland puts that in. Like I'm... As a male, 16, 18-year-old male, and that testosterone is flowing through you, that's not you right, right. That's, you're not in control of that yeah, yeah, yeah. right yeah. so that's our biological system and then we're all from these experiences around us so when that isis member is choosing that that pathway it's a result of all these experiences and if we have those same biological starts and those same experiences we would make the same decisions because we are products of a system as well a biological system our families influences coming in from all over the world so you don't we're all products so their ignorance is a product not a choice and they're not choosing so like they they don't even most people aren't even aware of the amount of choices they have so like even if we say left and right like that is that's that's on this linear plane that's wrong not only is it not left and right it's not up and down and it's not in and out it's all of it and wherever you stand in that is a different perspective the fourth dimension is reality is only applicable even from your perspective 
not necessarily what reality would be from just another perspective. Sure. So there's all these different dimensions that we are just a product of. So all of our ignorance is because of a system that has encouraged ignorance in us. And our education system is designed to encourage us to be robots, to fulfill a factory role that is now obsolete because we didn't codify a reevaluation of what would be needed in those long-term goals. So power wants us dumb. And so there's no reason for all the dumb people to argue about how the other person's dumber and how they all got here because we're all results of these inputs and influences. And so when I say there is no free will, for an example, there is data in the in the mindset where they're watching how the brain operates and they can see where if somebody's gonna choose left or right, their subconscious brain makes that decision and the observer can predict it before the conscious mind of the chooser can. So the person watching the MRI scan can say that he's gonna answer left before the guy can even conceptualize answering left and that moves over into the conscious brain so the decisions actually made in the subconscious and of course it is they only it's only been exposed to a certain amount of variables uh, when you make your decision you're not sitting there and the gears are turning and you're like I'm gonna weigh this and that and this and that it's done in the subconscious so you arrive at your decision before you do it so when people are like I don't know why I did that when Betty Shelby is like gripped with fear and kills Terrence McCrutcher and she's like I'm afraid she's not lying she was deathly afraid because of the biological system, because she does not have free will. But in that argument, wouldn't it mean, because you said that you were raised in poverty, mm -hmm. right? So in that argument, if you didn't have free will, then why would you make the choice to, I didn't. to I, move yourself out of it? My inside is some reason of all the influence perpetually ashamed of poverty and the scorn of that and an internal in uh like many i guess i'm not going to have like physical feelings of inferiority but those feelings of failure inferiority and masculinity to me have been a, 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 like expressed in like educational achievement and rising out of this scorn of being dumb poverty people. So like I'm not in control of that. I can't control that I'm I'm freaking doing all these checks in the boxes. I I want to not take another single goddamn course again after I'm finished this thing. But I know I know within a year I'm going to do some other. I'm going to be like I'm going to go get my JD. Why? Why? Because I'm, I'm only, that's what is in there from my experiences. And sure, that can be changed, but that will be changed because of experience and other people around me, not because of me. Just like all my theories and everything I am is a result of other people. I am the equation of what everyone has done to me. I hope you write that book because I will read that book. It's fast. That's a fascinating theory. I, I actually, that's gonna. I'm gonna chew on that for a few days. Well, I mean, that's sure. what we want to. So, so what I'm trying to do is codify that into the system of policing. I mean, we can all almost say like, yeah. I mean, if I'm gonna choose a cop, I'll choose this Mike Wood dude that's gonna be the cop. Like a lot of people are willing to accept that, and I'm like, yeah. So don't. Rely on me to be your police chief. Or rely on me to be your police system. So that the next dummy that comes in there doesn't screw it up. So that the system is serving you. Let And then replicate all those experiences that I had that gave you this answer that can be utilized. And give it to other people. 
make them not have the free will other than to choose right. It is an interesting concept to change the system, not the people. The people because are the pointless. people will then adapt to the system. Right. So right now, even if you're saying, oh, I want Bernie, right? then all you are doing is voting for the best mitigation possible. And the moment he's out of office, you're back to square one. That doesn't, doesn't change, change a damn thing. And really, because government's the same way, it doesn't have a corporate social responsibility theory built into it. It doesn't actually achieve any long-term goals that it wants for its people. So like sometimes the best thing we can do with government, Republicans are right, is stop the damn thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Baltimore right now just passed a mandatory minimum increase, which we know is, is ineffective for, for lowering crime, will hurt innocent people, and that's an entirely libertarian democratic uh, city, and they're doing something that we know doesn't work and will harm the people that supposedly is trying to help, but is President Trump passing any mandatory minimum increases? No. So the end result of of government action is harm to the citizens of Baltimore. Explain what that is, because I think people don't know what that so is. So mandatory minimum is like anything like a street th- strikes rule or anything like that. What they're applying it to right now... So three strikes rule. So three strikes rule back in the day would be like if you committed three felonies no matter how... Or committed two felonies, no matter how small the next the third crime was, it was a life in prison. So there are people that are in life in, life imprisonment from that for stealing a candy bar from, from a gas station. And so what they want to do is in Baltimore is they want to put a mandatory minimum of one year on any first-time gun offender. So somebody caught with a gun uh, that doesn't have a permit, and in Maryland it's almost impossible to get a permit for a gun. So anyone that's caught with a gun, immediate one year in jail. But in the last couple of years, you have people that were a school teacher was caught because she was afraid. A taxi cab driver had one. All these innocent, regularly normal people who have a gun on them because we have a gun culture and they're definitely afraid of the crime around them. So because of their fear of criminality, you have now made them a criminal for life felonize them, put them in a year in prison, so now they're marginalized, go through the horrors of prison, mm-hmm. where like most people don't know that more men are raped than women because of the prison system. So we all laugh, like, oh, he's going to get it. Okay, he's going to go get raped in prison. We're going to, again, meet revenge plus equality, and we're going to put that into our system. So we want to put these people in prison. We want to lock them away, and punishment is not a deterrent for crime. It's completely unassociated with anything with crime. In 2013, Vladimir Putin, you can look it up, said that his one his police departments going after a harsh prison sentence because there is no correlation to prison sentences and punishment being a deterrent for crime or reducing crime in any which way whatsoever. That is Vladimir Putin in 2013. Mm-hmm. So that is the amount of ignorance that we have in our society right now. I have students. a big problem with the fact that we take away voting rights for, for felons. You should. Yeah, I have a big problem with that. I think if you are creating a system I guess shit I could talk to you for hours if you're creating a system where you incarcerate someone for their crime and then they serve their time and they get out and they first of all they have to write felon on their you know job Mm -hmm. applications they can't drive they can't they can't vote so now they have no voice in the system it's that is a mess let's leave everybody with this the point of, of prison should not be punishment The point of prison is to separate from society so you can figure out what went wrong and fix it. And if you cannot fix it, then all you maintain is a segregation from society, not punishment. The world's... Okay, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer could have been in prison, gotten his PhD, and figured out the cure for cancer. 
but it's we true. instead we punish them when prison should be a separation from society to protect society, not punish other human beings. And by the way, educating uh, prisoners, their recidivism rate plummets. Of course. Makes me crazy. Everything makes me crazy. (laughs) Michael Wood, thank you. I I have so many, I mean, it's, I could talk to you literally for hours. It would be so easy. It's, it's a fascinating subject. It's a terrible sad subject there's, there's so many levels to it i i would love to have you on again at some point um tell everybody how to find you uh the easiest way to find me i guess to go to the, the website option which is michaelawoodjr.net uh not.com i don't even remember how that happened um and on Twitter, a lot of people follow me on there. But Your Twitter is good. I still got to figure out my place on Twitter, which is at Michael A. Wood Jr. It's pretty much, I put in Michael A. Wood Jr. for pretty much everything, whether it's Instagram or anything, so you can find me. And yeah. the reason the Jr. is a big deal is because of the British historian. Oh, yes. So, like, right. I've been British. trying to, like, take out the initials and the Jr. stuff eventually, but, like... I also feel like that British historian is like a remarkable dude, and yeah. like a lot of people love. So I don't want to like it's take off the junior, and I don't want my searches to mask his. Yeah. So like I keep I'm trying to just take the A out and just yeah. leave the junior now. But everything on all media will be that way. Yeah. It can and easily then, be found, and uh, obviously we'll answer sometimes. And I I'll put all the links as always on Hey Human Podcast and civilian led policing. That's the big deal if you actually want to help out. Um, I'm just a board member, but they're they're the ones that are really going to do the hard work and are the hidden heroes, and that's civilianledpolicing.org, and you can help out there with getting the model put into your place. I mean, they'll do everything they can to help. Yeah, and again, all those links will be on the on the heyhumanpodcast.com. Thanks everybody for listening. Thank you, Michael. Thank you. Bye, Bye everyone.